following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship, St. Pete, in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. This, this week, I'll, I'll tell you that sometimes, if, if anybody's ever you know, had to prepare a lesson or prepare, in, in this case, a message, uh, sometimes things just fall together and it's, uh, it, it works out really well. And then there's other times when it feels like a struggle. You know, the, you're, something's kind of warring inside you and you... It, and that's, that's the way I felt this week for this message. Every time I would go to, to write something down, I'm like, is, is, this, is this what I want to say? Is, is this what it's about? And, and it, it felt harder than normal. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because when, when we had the, the morning group, just so you guys know, we, we meet in classroom one at nine o'clock on Sunday mornings and we go through the passage and we, we answer some, some background questions and we have some really, really great discussion. And a lot of the discussion that we had this morning pointed directly to where the Lord had led me in this message. And I, and I thought that that was amazing because really for, for me, it, it allows me to see that it's not, it's not me. It's, it's not what, what I've done. It's not what I'm thinking. It, it's all the Lord, and it's all where, where he's leading. And it's great because our God is sovereign, right? He's the Lion of Judah, and he's going to conquer the enemy. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we have a, you know, up front, it just made, it made me think we have a decision to make. Are we going to bow our knees daily in prayer to the Lord, or are we going to wait to the end to where we'll have to bow? There's, there's, no other, there's no other stance to take before the glory of the Lord. And, and that's, a, that's a tough decision, and every person will have to make that decision. Tough decisions are, are a part of life. Personally, when I make decisions, sometimes I forget to bow my knee and pray before I make decisions. And, and I think that, again, that, that's a part of life. I remember when, when I was younger in, in high school, <laughs> I thought life was real hard. Right? I had so many responsibilities, so many important decisions. <laughs> but now that I'm grown up, <laughs> and there, there's a joke behind this. And on Wednesday night, you know how you, you know how you know when you're a grown up is, is when you get up and you're like, ah. It's when you groan. When you get up, you're a grown up. <laughs> so now that I'm older, I can, I can look back and see that that I was very wrong. Right, the, a lot of the responsibilities and the decisions I had when I was younger, they're they're nothing compared to the decisions that we have to make now. Especially when the decisions that you are making are impacting others, others that that you love dearly, and and that is a 
that's a hard lesson to learn. It's been my experience that the responsibilities and decisions that we make as we, as we age, they, they don't get any easier. In fact, I would say that they, they probably get harder. One of the ways that it's affected me that, that I've talked about is, is with my children. So it, it's a tough decision when we have to teach and guide others. Um, being, being a teacher, you experience this daily. But it's different with my, with my own children. I have more of a vested interest there, probably because I'm, I'm around them a lot more. And one of the things I've learned is that I, I'm always seeking to gain wisdom from others who've gone through similar life experiences than me. So why, why is this wisdom? And one of the things we discussed about this morning is that this type of wisdom draws from a relationship. We get to build relationships with others. And, and our God is a God of relationship. No one models the relationship with his father greater than Jesus. And we see that in the passage today by how he prays. So let's Let's start with a word of prayer before we get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that that you would slow our minds this moment, Lord. Lord, guide us and teach us. Lord, silence all of the all of the messages that are coming from the world at this moment. And Lord, let us hear your, your quiet, still voice. Lord, as we reread your word, I just pray that your spirit would, would write it on our hearts. Lord, that we would seek you. Lord, that we would seek your face, that we would seek to dwell with you, to be in your presence. And Lord, that that the fear of the Lord would be our, our wisdom. Lord, that we would not be afraid to humble ourselves and bow our knees in prayer for even the smallest decisions that we make, but that we would seek you in all areas, big and small. And Father, that you would give us a heart of love and a heart of compassion, the same heart that, that you showed us and how you how you came to seek and save the lost. And Father, that you would that you would just teach us in new ways how to love you more, how the the love that we have for you would drive every other love that we have in our life. And it's because of this love that we can live a life of joy. And we have hope. And Lord, let us share this hope with everyone around us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 6, if you'd like to, to turn with us, or the, the passage is going to be up on the screen. If everybody would stand as we, we read God's word this morning, Luke six twelve through 19, this is the word of God.
In these days, he, being Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, and Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. You may be seated. So there's a lot of names in, in this one for, for a reason. Um, he chose the twelve. It, the parallel passages uh, in Mark 10, 1 through 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 10, 1 through 4, and Mark 3, 13 through 19, primarily corroborate the names of the twelve that were chosen. But Mark adds an important detail to how the events had an impact on Jesus' earthly family, which we'll, which we'll look at later. It's a very interesting point. So let's go ahead and, and dive in. This first sentence is, is huge. So this is Luke 6, verse 12. We read, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So the first thing is, what's referred to at the very beginning where it says, in these days. So in these days, Jesus was still in Galilee around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where he made his home at Capernaum. This was not his hometown. His, his hometown is in Nazareth. But what happened in Nazareth that drove him away? Un- unbelief. The, when he began his earthly ministry, uh, they, they wanted to kill him. They, they drove him out. And so he set up his, um, his time in Galilee around Capernaum. And this was an interesting region. So this region had mountains that rose up from the sea. The Sea of Galilee itself, which I didn't know, sat about 700 feet below sea level. This is in the Rift Valley, 700 feet below sea level. And the mountains around Capernaum rose to about 2,500 feet above the sea. So they're, they're fairly steep when they come up from the water, but they were lower than many other mountains that you might see because they they start so low below sea level. So what is what's important about mountains? Have we have we read about mountains before in scripture? People people climbing mountains. And we'll we'll talk about that more. We also read that Jesus went to the mountain to pray and he prayed all night. 
So when he went to the mountain, we also read that he later came down and he stood on level ground. So he went up to the mountain to pray because he had a decision to make. The decision was, who was he going to choose? Who was the father going to tell him to choose? This was a big decision. These were the ones that Jesus was going to send off later. He commissioned them. He were the ones who was going who he told to teach everything that I had commanded you. They were the the close group that was around him. He taught them more than, than any others. They heard his words. They lived with him night and day. His life was their life. They followed him closely. Moses also climbed a mountain to be with God. <clears throat> On this mountain, God gave Moses the commandments by which Israel would live. But he also gave him something else. He was given the blueprints to the the tabernacle, which would later be the temple. This is important for us. When we have a big decision in life, and and in, in some cases even small decisions... What does it look like for us to climb a mountain to be with God? Has anybody ever felt like that? Like you had to climb a mountain sometimes before you make a decision? And so we come to another interesting question. Why did Jesus have to pray? He's God. Why does he have to pray? And there's a lot of historical significance to this question, and it's one that split some of the early church fathers about the about who Jesus was. Was he more man than God? Was he fully God and fully man? So there's there, there were some interesting questions here, and we don't have the time to, to dig into those. But if that's something that interests you. Um, it, it would be good to look at. So w- was was this just an example to his disciples and to us of how to live a life of righteousness? Did did Jesus pray just to give us an example? No, I, I don't think so either. And there's there's many instances in scriptures where where we see him praying, and we we hear his prayers. In fact, in Luke 11. The disciples asked him, how should we pray? And, and that's where we have the Lord's Prayer. But I believe there's more to it. And one of the aspects I'd like to, to draw out of that this morning is that his prayers reveal a heart of love toward his Father. It's this idea of relationship. He wasn't... He wasn't just praying to ask for things. This was just a communication. He was having a conversation with his father. One of the prayers in scripture where I feel we we really get a heart or we, we see Jesus' heart of love and prayer 
is in the high priestly prayer in John 17. And I'd like to read some of this for you guys this morning. And, and as I read it, listen to his heart of love, not just for his father, but, but for those that the father has given him. This is John 17. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5. We read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this is John 17, 10 through 12. Jesus says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. These, these are things that we're going, to, we're going to strive for our whole life. Jesus says, keep them in your name. John seventeen twenty five through 26, this is the, the end of the prayer, and I, I love this. He says, O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So it was the love that he had for his father and the love that he had for the disciples that drove him to prayer. Was was this a short prayer that he had on the mountain? How long did this prayer last? All night. Before being betrayed and handed over to those who would falsely accuse him, Jesus prayed. Again, it was at night on the Mount of Olives, and he asked some of the disciples that were with him to pray with him. So Jesus was praying earnestly, so earnestly that sweat was pouring out of him. Meanwhile, what were his disciples doing, the ones he asked to pray? They were sleeping. They could not stay awake to pray even for one hour. 
What did they lack? Did they lack motivation, perspective, discipline? We've read many times about how Jesus drew away to desolate places and prayed. So this was not a new feature of his life and ministry. The way that we as humans develop in different areas is through discipline, through doing something over and over. Prayer was a spiritual discipline that Jesus maintained throughout his life. So let's consider Paul. Paul said he he called himself a slave to Christ. And he said that he had to discipline his body for the sake of winning lost souls. He likens this discipline to that of an athlete. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, this is what Paul says. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul speaks about the the element of discipline. Let's look at the the next part of the passage. This is Luke 6, 13 through 16. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and his brother, Andrew, or Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there were a multitude of disciples who were following Jesus. And he chose twelve from them. When Moses went up to the mountain, remember, he, he received the blueprints, Instead of getting blueprints to build a physical temple like Moses, Jesus was given the twelve apostles as the bricks upon which God would build his church. Jesus being the cornerstone and the capstone. And each one who's born of the Spirit is a temple of the Lord, another brick upon which his church is built. The church the bricks upon that, that the Lord has chosen, transcends national boundaries, ethnic barriers, racial, racial divides, and social constructs. If our trust is in anything made by man which serves the world's purpose, then it's an illusion. 
Do our eyes deceive us? Twelve is a prominent number in Jewish history. It relates to the twelve tribes of Israel. So here, Jesus is not only establishing the, the temple, but he's also establishing a new nation, a renewed Israel. This would not have been lost on the disciples present. Twelve is a, a very prominent number. Yet they did not understand the spiritual implications that Jesus was speaking. They were awaiting a, a physical kingdom. The Holy Spirit had not yet descended on them to give them the, the direction. So interestingly, interestingly, in Mark 3, 20 through 21, just after the parallel passage in Mark, we read, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. That's what his family was saying. He is out of his mind. More than likely, they were saying this because they were concerned for him. Maybe they'd been feeling some pressure from the community about how he was acting. It's also possible that there were those among the multitude of disciples that were better qualified to be chosen. But he chose the twelve for a reason. And he did it out of submission for the Father. So let's take a minute and let's look at the twelve to see who they were. And some of you probably have a, a good idea already. So four of the twelve were fishermen. Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And if you, and if you remember, if you recall, they were, um, they were on the boat when Jesus told them to, to drop the net. And so... That was, that was a big catch. We read about Matthew, who was the tax collector. And then we, we see that Simon was a zealot. And there's some discussion as to uh, the word zealot, how it's translated. Some consider it to be just a ge geographical location. And others consider that he was possibly a politician or some sort of revolutionary. There's Judas Iscariot, who was the one who handled the money among the group. He was called a thief and an embezzler in John 12. And he eventually betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible doesn't provide us much information on the others, but Thomas, Nathaniel, Philip, they may have also been fishermen, as that's what they were doing when Jesus came back to them and reappeared in, in John 21. So when we consider this group, it was, a, it was a pretty ragtag group, hardly one that would have impressed the Pharisees and the scribes. when we consider who, who the Pharisees, who they would have chosen 
they were looking for the best and the brightest, right? You had to you had to measure up to be in their group. How many are so <laughs> happy that we don't have to measure up? <laughs> and there's a lot of reassurance in this for us, right? If God can use fishermen and tax collectors, then he can use you too. It's not as if they live perfectly, even after being chosen. Peter was named first in every list of disciples in the Bible. But he denied Jesus three times in a short span after being told that he would do it. So he was prepared. All of them but John had scattered and hid when Jesus was being crucified. So luckily, it's not what we know, but who we know that matters. After being restored by Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter spoke boldly as recorded in Acts 2 where 3,000 were baptized and added to their number. Did you guys hear that? At one time, 3,000 were baptized and added to their number. And we, we spoke about this a, a little bit this morning in the, in the group about how when we, when we share the gospel are we guaranteed that the Spirit is going to save that person immediately? No, sometimes we just plant seeds. Sometimes we, we till the soil. And sometimes we reap the harvest. And, and we, we read about that in Scripture, multiple occasions. Now, I would be... Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the one, the apostle who was abnormally born. Who is that? Paul. So Judas was replaced by the eleven early in Acts, by Matthias. But later we see that Jesus himself appeared to a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who was, at that moment, persecuting the church. He was on the road to Damascus with orders from Jerusalem to persecute the church. But Jesus had different plans for Paul. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles. That's an, that's an amazing story in itself. So let's get back to the passage. So this is um, Luke six, seventeen through 19. And we read, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So we read that he came down and stood on a level place. 
and and for that reason, the next portion of Luke six is called the Sermon on the Plain. And I I did a little looking into this because in, in some of what I've read, there are, there's others who believe that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are actually the same sermon. And when looking at it, the, the level ground could be thought of as a, a plateau on the mountain. So have you guys ever seen that where you're on a mountain and then there's a level spot on the mountain? So there's there's some who feel that, that it's just a shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's others who, who feel that there, there are separate teachings. And, and Matt brought up a, a good point this morning about how there, there was no nothing being written down at this point. So as Jesus was teaching, if he went from one area to another, he would have to give the same teachings over and over in different places. So um, the rabbis were constantly repeating themselves as they went. So it, it would not be hard to think of this as a repeat of a different teaching at a different time. So there were there were many there with Jesus, including his disciples, and it says others from all Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon, which is on the, the coast north of Jerusalem. And this came up also this morning, which I thought was, was really neat. He was not just teaching them, but he was healing them. And beyond that, there was something else going on. He was feeding them. And it, it doesn't mention this in here, but I, I get a strong sense that there was, there was some spiritual food that was being given and living water. It's important that we not lose sight of the rewards that await in heaven and try to work to seek our reward on earth. As physical beings, it's easy to get sidetracked by the desires of our flesh. We know that the great crowd followed Jesus at one point because he was feeding them. They just wanted the physical food. They sought to touch him because power had come out from him. This is awesome. Power had come out from him and healed all of them. So in our flesh, we desire food for the body. But in John 4, Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Then Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Donald, who who joined us this morning, mentioned that. How many of us wake up in the morning desiring the spiritual food and we chew on it as we go throughout our day, feeding on the scripture. 
I can only imagine the sight of our Lord and the power that shone out from his presence. It's my heart's delight to seek the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. Knowing that he's the source of life and his imprint is on everything that's made. His power has shone in the world since creation and will shine in all the glory of the Father when he returns for his church. And this morning, that's our, that's our spiritual reward. When he returns, that we will be with him, that we will be one as he and the Father are one. And that, should, that type of love, that joy should, should drive our life. Which brings us to the applications this morning. I've I have two applications for you. The first one is be fruitful. Jesus' life was full of fruit as he lived by the Holy Spirit. For us, fruit is both evidence that we are his and that we are abiding in him. If we don't abide him, we cannot bear fruit. But we also must set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So, What are these things that we should set our mind on? What are these things that are above? And I believe that Scripture has given us a very clear indication of what we set our mind on. First is love. Jesus told us to love God first, and second, to love others. This must be our heart's desire to first love God and then love others. And if you, if you need a, a backdrop on, on love, we can read the love chapter, which is 1 Corinthians 13, to help us get a better understanding of what, what this love is. The second is joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength and transcends happiness. Do you you have to be happy to be joyful? Are there situations in life that are hard? Can we be joyful in tough situations? So, so where does our joy come from? Where, if it's not coming from our physical situation, where does, where does this type of joy come from? From being in his presence, which is what we seek. If we, if we love God, then we're going to want a relationship with him. And that relationship, being in his presence is what brings us the joy. We can't create that joy within ourselves. 
You can't buy this type of joy. You can't work for it. The third is peace. This is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Later we're going to read, Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you have to be thinking about peace in order to be a peacemaker? Or does it just happen? (laughs) Sometimes, peace is a struggle. Especially when we have messages being being bombarded from, from all sides. But again, this is the peace that surpasses all understanding. The fourth is patience. We may not understand the will of God for our lives in each moment, but trust that you will receive what he's promised. And ultimately, what are we promised? What's the promise that we that we seek ultimately? To be with him, right? Salvation, to this this ultimate perfection. To be with him again. When when he comes, and he will come, that we will be reunited with him in the clouds. This is the promise. And that's takes patience. We don't know when it's going to happen. Many people think they know when it's going to happen. But I think that's trying to bypass bypass this patience, right? We like to be in control. The fifth is kindness. Fruit of the Spirit. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. So there's a link between kindness and forgiveness. So what is it about forgiveness that lends itself to kindness? I feel there's a softening of the heart. In order to forgive, you must also realize that you are forgiven. So again, it changes our perspective. We see what the Lord has done for us and then we in turn, through loving him, are able to love others and we're able to forgive. And that softness of heart and forgiveness creates this peace and allows us to show kindness to others. Now, is it possible to show fake kindness? Is it can can you act like you're being kind to somebody, but in your heart you're 
Maybe there's something festering underneath, right? You're holding a grudge, right? It's hard. <clears throat> and that's, that's where Jesus' teachings transcend this physical environment. He's, he's saying, it's one thing to be kind, but where's your heart? Right? It's got to come from, from a pure heart. And again, this is fruit of the Spirit. This can't be done without the work of the Spirit. We can't earn this. You can't make up your own kindness. The next one is goodness. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's a sense in, in goodness that there's a choice that has to be made. And again, there's a physical component of this. Because with many of these, you can't separate. I can't just say, well, I'm good, and then not do anything that's good. right? Can you only be good inside yourself? Or does fruit show itself? Right, you can you can see fruit. Fruit fruit is visible. A tree can't say, okay, well, I'm I'm bearing fruit, but then there's no fruit there, right? What did Jesus do to the fig tree that didn't bear fruit? He cursed it. And it withered in a short period of time. So there there's an element here that goodness is overcoming evil. There's a there's a spiritual battle happening. And I know that everybody in here has experienced this spiritual battle. At different times in our lives, there's attacks that happen. And in those attacks, sometimes the last thing you want to do is be good to somebody, to, sh- to show kindness. But that's what's going to overcome evil. The next one is faithfulness. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So ultimately, who is faithful? God, can, can we have this type of faithfulness? Not, not this side of the cross. We're, we're going to make mistakes. But faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. So there's some element of faithfulness which we're called to bear fruit in. So what, is that, what does that look like? What does this type of faithfulness look like? Well, ultimately, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so our our faithfulness, part of this, I I wouldn't say this is everything, but part of our faithfulness is having his heart towards those who are lost. Not backing down. It says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. So what does that look like to deny him? 
maybe if we're given an opportunity to share the gospel, but we're afraid, right? There, there's elements to this. And faithfulness can show itself in many ways. So don't feel like I'm saying you have to be constantly pushing the gospel. It could be a kind word. It could be a kind deed. Right? All, all of these elements point to faithfulness. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Is that the Lord will work in each one of our lives according to his will. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. The next is gentleness. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anyone. So again, gentleness has an element that we're, we're fighting against something, right? This, this anger, Gen- gentleness and anger here are portrayed together. And if any of you have ever had a hard time with anger, you know that when you're angry, that's one of the last things that, that's on your mind is, is being gentle. But that's what, that's, that's what wars against anger is gentleness. And just like Jesus who, who prayed to the Father, in those times, in those situations, if we go to the Father, he's the one who's going to give us this heart, this change of perspective, this change of attitude, so that we can be gentle in these times. And the last, and it's last for a reason, is self-control. This is Titus 2:11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And again, these works are the, the work of the Spirit. So, self-control is hard. Because if, if you're like me, Sometimes we get obsessed with things that maybe we see, things that maybe we want. And in those moments, this, the temptation can sometimes outweigh our self-control. But self-control, again, these are, these are the things that it says to set your mind on. Are we always going to be setting our mind on these things? Are we always going to be able to live perfectly by the Spirit? But in these moments, we set our mind on these. I 
set your mind on things above. So let's go to the the second application point this morning, which ties in closely, and it is discipleship. We talked this morning in the group about how each one of us is in a different stage in our journey, a different stage in our in our walk with Christ, and how together we may not be in the same place, but we can learn from one another. We have discipleship small groups here at the church. We meet. But ultimately, anyone who's born of the Spirit is a disciple of Jesus. He's given us his spirit that guides us in all truth. One area of discipleship that is personal and unique is how we submit to the spirit on a daily basis. And as we submit to the spirit, it will show in our lives. There'll be fruit, the fruitfulness. Submission to the spirit will align our will to God's will and produce fruit. Not only should we set our minds on things above, but as Titus said, we should desire to do them as opportunities arise. I'm going to ask that the the worship team come up. And as they come up, um, it's, it's my prayer for, for each one of you here today and for those who, who couldn't make it that you'll set your minds on things above and submit yourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, ourselves, me included, and that we'll produce fruit according to the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he gets all the glory and all the honor forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.